Hi, and welcome to SpondyCast, where we bring together the best medical minds, thought leaders, scientists, patients, and caregivers to inform and inspire the spondylitis community. I'm your host, Jill Miller, living my best spa life, knowing that how we meet today has the power to change everything going forward. Hi, and welcome to SpondyCast. Today, our guest is Dr. Christina Downey, an associate professor of medicine at Loma Linda University Health and is the chair of rheumatology, where there are six fellows. She is also the chair of the Government Affairs Committee for the American College of Rheumatology and is that society's young physician representative, representative to the American Medical Association. She is also board certified by the American College of Lifestyle Medicine and has an interest in bringing preventative medicine and lifestyle medicine to the practice of rheumatology. Dr. Downey, thank you for joining us today on SpondyCast. We're going to talk about step therapy. Uh, but first, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. So step therapy is something I think a lot of us don't know a ton about, but it sounds like it's going to become a more hot topic, especially for listeners and people with uh, conditions like spondyloarthritis. Can you give us an overview of what step therapy is and its significance in the treatment of patients with spondyloarthritis? Step therapy is essentially a cost control measure that's put in place by insurance companies that requires physicians and APPs to prescribe medicines um, for certain conditions in a certain order. So for people with spondyloarthropathies, the largest percent of the medication pie that they're going to be on is going to be the biologic medications. So in the United States, the biologic medicines are really expensive. We know their value. We know that they improve quality of life, that they prevent progression, and they keep people in the workforce. Um, but the insurance companies just see that dollar sign. So they try to funnel patients to the cheapest medicines first, and then in a stepwise fashion, they'll allow you to reach the more expensive medications. So one distinction I wanted to make on this, because it's it was where my confusion was, the step therapy is a way to control cost, and it goes outside of what would be, for example, treatment guidelines recommended by ACES or spondyloarthritis or Spartan or various governing bodies, essentially. So it's yeah. going outside of that. So we like in a treat typical treatment, it's like the recommendation is first line is right ibuprofen or uh, anti-inflammatories, and then it's the treatment moves up depending on the patient, and step therapy kind of circumvents what is the patient's uh, specific, I don't want to say story, but like condition and, and experience and kind of circumvents that just to control cost. 100%. You've got Okay. It. So I want to make sure I understood that and it wasn't. <clears throat> yeah. So the guidelines, um, guidelines that are put out are in place to help guide prescribing people, so physicians or nurse practitioners or whoever it's going to be, um, to make sure that they're doing evidence-based medicine and utilizing the medications that have shown to be efficacious in that particular disease state. However, um, the step therapy recommendations are often not in line with those guidelines. I have found, I've even found that I've 
had to write letters to insurance companies to let them know that particular medicines that they're recommending for a particular condition isn't even approved by the FDA for that condition. And so I don't understand why you would want me to give it to a patient. So they're, depending on um, the condition and the level of evidence that exists and the, the quality of the medical director for that particular health plan, you might get step therapy rules that make absolutely no sense clinically whatsoever. Okay, I'm going to go outside of the, a little bit in the weeds here. Is there a feedback loop for what you just described to the FDA? So an insurance company decides somebody should be taking a medication that isn't approved for a particular condition, but they're recommending it for a cost control measure. Is there a feedback loop for you to go to the FDA and say, this is ridiculous? So it's not FDA that's putting in that recommendation that the patient should take this medication. It's the health plan. So what I do is I send uh, back a literature review basically for them to review and so that they can say, you know, they can understand that what they're asking for doesn't really make sense. We have to be a little bit careful here because as rheumatologists, we do use drugs that are not FDA approved for certain conditions. Right. Sometimes the drugs are oldies but goodies and they've been around for a long time and no one's going to pay to do those studies to go back to make sure that things are efficacious in different diseases. We know that they are. And so we use them despite lacking an FDA label. So the, the FDA um, label is kind of a, a double-edged sword in rheumatology. Okay. I'll leave it there then. Uh, so overall potential challenges and drawbacks of step therapy for patients in rheumatology and spa in particular? Yeah, step therapy is harmful when there aren't guardrails. What I mean by that is there has to be a way for prescribing physicians and patients to get around the step that they're supposed to take next. So uh, if we know that someone has already been on a certain medication, they've tried it for three months, they know it doesn't work for them, and then they go to a different health plan because their job decided that they wanted to switch insurance companies. Now this new health plan without the appropriate guardrails in place can say, okay, I know you've already done drug A, but that was with a different insurance company. So now you're going to have to do it again with us for three months. And so they can take people off their stable therapies and start them on whatever random medicine that they want them to, even if they're stable and doing well. So that's, that's one of the ways that it's really, really harmful for patients with um, spinal arthritis, especially because the disease is progressive. The disease can lead to permanent disability. And so if you take someone who's under great control, take away their medicine, give them a different medicine that doesn't work, you can imagine how that person's next three months is going to feel. Yeah. It's why many people in the community are terrified to make changes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so what exists today, is there right, is it regulated at this point that step therapy is an okay approach? So it depends on who your insurer is, and it depends on whether you live in a state that has protections. So the different health plans are governed by different bodies. So if you are a Medicare recipient, then your health plan is governed by the federal government. If you have a health plan that's either uh, a Medicaid 
product or it's a commercial insurance product that's governed by a state body, then whatever protections are in at the level of the state would cover you. So a, a lot of states do have these guardrails where it gives, you need to have a certain turnaround time for appeals. If someone's already been on a medication and you can document it, you don't have to go through that medication again, et cetera, et cetera. So um, <clears throat> much of the work for step therapy advocacy does happen at the state. And so in California, actually, Governor Newsom just signed a bill that requires, not just signed, was, I think it was a year ago, but you know, recently in the long scope of things, has signed a bill that requires health plans to grant step therapy exceptions in a timely manner. So it has to be 72 hours, unless it's a case um, that's been deemed a medical emergency and then 24 hours. And it allows doctors to appeal the step therapy that's preferred for the health plan's treatment order if the patient's tried it previously, if it isn't compatible with any of their other health problems that they may have, um, or if they were already stable on a drug, then um, per this new law in California, you can't be made to switch to a different medicine. So there are though about 17 states where there is not state legislation to address the harms that, state, that step therapy um, can do for patients. So at, there's also work in the federal level. So there's a bill called the Safe Step Act, which was rolled into a larger package that's addressing pharmacy benefit managers. And this is HR uh, 2630 in the House and S652 in the Senate, if anybody wants to look it up and see the language of that bill. But it's something that um, I've been working on from an advocacy front, along with all of the rest of the patient physician advocates for, for quite a while. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think the uh, SAA's advocacy committee is probably doing some work in that area. Uh, maybe we can put some links to those bills in, in the podcast when we launch it. Uh, so what happens, so just at the very base case-by-case -case human level, you talked a little bit about step therapies impact and it can be negative. Um, I don't know if there, there's a lot of positive upsides to it um, that we've talked about, but does it affect specific populations or are there resources that people should be aware of that if they're challenged uh, and have to go the route of step therapy, where do they go to ensure like a better, a better outcome and better access to care that, that they need? Yeah, so it probably affects people with um, maybe poorer health literacy who don't have the skills to be great advocates for themselves when they're in a healthcare setting. Um, maybe people who don't really have a great uh, relationship with their physician, or if they're in a place where they're really impacted by a healthcare shortage and they don't have access to a rheumatologist very easily, maybe they're able to be seen once a year only, and then their family medicine doctor has to help fill in with prescriptions. So those those might be um, some more challenging areas where step therapy might impact people a little bit more. What I would say is that probably the, the best thing to do if you're concerned about this, which you know all of us should be concerned about this, but 
contact your insurance health plan. They all have formularies that are either searchable or in a PDF format that you can control F through and find your conditions of whether it's ankylosing spondylitis or non-radiographic spots or iatic arthritis, whatever it is that you're dealing with, uh, you can request that information and then you'll be able to see what the step therapy is for that plan. And okay. then you want to be your own note taker. So make sure that you keep your own records. I took this medicine from this state to this state and we stopped it because of this reason. We took this medicine from this state to this state and it stopped for this reason. So if you're able to have that and say, you know, hey, Dr. Downey, I, I'm just meeting you. Um, I had to change my insurance. So, you know, you're my new doctor, but I want you to know my history. Here's a list of all the medicines I've taken, the dates I took them, the reasons why they were changed. And for me, that is the most helpful thing because then I can put that right in the patient's note. And then when we request the medication that that patient's already stable on, I could say, hey, this, this medicine was started on this date. Her disease is X percent better. She's already been on these other meds. In other words, like just, just fill the med <laughs> that the patient's on. So that's also another really great way to advocate for yourself when you're in your physician's office. That's fantastic. And I'll say uh, Richard, who always is there in our green room um, and is amazing. He said, if we, if anyone is interested, you can go to spondylitis.org forward slash advocacy, and it will make it easy to contact your Congress people and senators regarding the Safe Step Act. And I'm sure other, other areas of advocacy. Uh, so in terms of, let's, I'll keep moving, but like in terms of you as a healthcare provider and your team, are there certain things you do proactively to try and help people navigate this step therapy? And I know you talked a little bit about ways to ensure uh, access to the appropriate treatment. Is there anything else that we didn't cover or tips and tricks? Um, most physicians offices, because the prior authorization and um, you know, navigating this whole process is so onerous, actually employ someone full-time and their only job is to do these prior authorization requests to help people navigate step therapy. So I would learn who that person is in your doctor's office and uh, make sure you answer phone calls when they come through that could be yeah. from the doctor's office okay. uh, so that you can provide that information to them and really just help, help them help you by providing as much information as possible. Sure. That's very good. And then you, we talked a little bit about advocacy. So uh, are there any specific initiatives that you're working on or that are out there? Um, I know Safe Step Act, uh, if you want to talk a little bit more about that, or uh, if there's other areas that you or Loma Linda or you know is going on in this community. The biggest happenings right now are really at the state level until we know whether the package that the Safe Step Act was tied to is going to go through, then there's not a whole lot left to do for that unless you yourself have not contacted your representative, which it sounds like you can do that from the Spondylitis Association of America on the advocacy landing page. Um, just click the button that says the Safe Step Act or Step Therapy, and then you can fill out a little form, personalize it as much as you want to, share your story, That'll get sent off to your representatives, both in the House and the Senate, 
And that just adds another little layer of pressure uh, or just, you know, adds a little bit more information to that representative to know, hey, someone in my district feels really strongly about this. I need to make sure I show up and vote yes to pass this bill. So at the federal level, that's what I would do. I would join one of these letter writing campaigns and make sure that your representative knows how you feel about it. At the state level, there are several states without any legislation at all protecting against the harms of step therapy. So you can go to um, www.steptherapy.com actually, and then it'll bring up, you can navigate to this map and on the map you can click your state. And if you do not have step therapy protections in your state, you can maybe work with um, you know, people in the community or, or others and get help to get a bill written and passed in your state that protects uh, you and everybody else who's, who goes through this, which is, you know, pretty much anybody who has any contact with the healthcare system. And in general, do you think uh, from the chair you sit in, I mean, we've seen the step therapies going on, uh, copay accumulator bills, and do you think in this age of healthcare getting more expensive, are we going to continue to see, I don't want to call them blockers, but maybe that's what they are, blockers to care uh, for patients in general? And, and is advocacy going is advocacy or Hill advocacy, I think they call it, is that going to become more and more critical for patients going forward? So America's really tricky because we have so many different healthcare plans. We don't have a national health system. Um, you know, up until very recently, there's been no effort made to try to buy medications in bulk to lower the price. So there are a lot of moving parts with this right now. There are some drugs that Medicare will be price negotiating to do bulk purchasing. Um, you know, some people think that's bad. Some people think that's good. I think that it remains to be seen of what's going to come of that. But really, the, the drug pricing is the root of this. And the drugs are so much more expensive in the United States than they are in other uh, similar countries from a GDP standpoint or a westernized, quote unquote, type of country. Um, our drugs are just so very expensive. And so part of that reason is because we have this third party system in the United States called pharmacy benefit managers. They charge fees at every step of the way. They don't really provide anything for the patient. They don't really provide anything for the doctor. They don't provide anything for the pharmacy or the health insurance company, but they've created a need where no need was and they've filled it very well. And so we've seen over the last, I don't know, 10 years or whatever, that the drug prices continue to climb higher and higher and higher. And the, the piece of the pie that drugs are costing in our whole healthcare system just continues to grow. So the, the trajectory that we're on is really unsustainable in the long term. And I think it's just a matter of where in that system are we going to see the breaks that are going to allow us to course correct a little bit and come back towards a more sustainable system? I think advocacy in any form plays a huge role. The voice of the healthcare consumer is so important. And what's really important are your stories. So 
I can give stories of how I see this affecting patients, but people don't really want to hear from physicians so much. They want to hear from patients. And so if you, on a human level, talk to anyone at all who has any ability to make changes in these arenas and you say, I have to choose between paying the copay for the biologic that I need to keep me in the workplace and making sure that I have heat through the winter or enough groceries on my table. You know, these are choices that a lot of people have to make. And until you break it down to a level of storytelling, it's hard to get across how harmful these practices are to people, to everyday people. So I, I'm getting a, like, I'm getting my own like story piece, right. Of the, and, and while you were talking about this, I was like Googling, like, how do you disrupt the pharmacy benefit manager business model? <laughs> so all I think about is like, because the, I had this conversation the other day with somebody, a little bit of a sidetrack, but there's two things at play here. One is capitalism. And I don't love the traditional definition of it. I like stakeholder capitalism, which would include the patient. Mm -hmm. And, but some of it is, how do you disrupt it? Because it's a brilliant business model that just, I'm going to do more research there, but uh, there's got to be somebody that can step in, take over, make the consumer happy, make the insurance companies happy and, 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 and not drive us into some of the problems we're in, right? Like healthcare, you almost can add to like environment, and I guess it falls under the social social piece of, of governance, but there's that and there's policy. And when you look at the, 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 the trajectory of certain policies, I mean, we seem to even get pushed in and packaged into other bills and not the forefront. I... It's like squeaky wheel gets the grease, right? Yeah, exactly. And yeah. I always use the stat of like, people think smoking doesn't exist in the US, but it costs the Medicare and Medicaid system billions of dollars a year, every year still. And 5 million people a year globally die from it. But no one's putting money into eliminating it. Right? So it's, and it's just, yeah. It's crazy. Okay, sorry. I digress because what I was thinking today was 10 years ago when I got my diagnosis, I was getting all kinds of different like you know, treatments and I just recently did an update for a physician I hadn't seen in a long time and all these medications were on it. And I remember writing a letter because I couldn't get a biologic approved when I was first diagnosed and I wrote a letter and I said with the biologic that you don't want to now pay for, I went from being someone whose insurance was billed out at over $200,000 a year to one medication. And I went back to work and like, but it's true. These things happen and it plays a huge role in people's quality of life. Yeah, absolutely. And we're not a country that does really well with preventative measures. We are a reactionary country. And so rather than investing in ways that we could keep people in the workforce, keep them with a good quality of life, have, you know, self-efficacy and, you know, you know, cause work fulfills more for us than just a paycheck, right? Like it's, it gives us, you know, 
some level of degree of identity, some level of degree of mental stimulation, of relational stimulation. You know, you, you have that insulation from loneliness when you're going to a workplace. And so it just, it's a completely downstream effect. And so we should be motivated for the people who who wish to work, who choose to work. Um, you know, we, we really should be prioritizing keeping people functional for as long as possible. And so when you go to lawmakers and you tell them about the downstream effects that can be um, fiscally positive, well, they're not running for election in five years. They're not running for election in 10 years. They're running for election right now. And so the only thing they care about is how much are we spending today? Because right. that's what I am going to campaign on. Right. And they don't learn to love the long term. They're going back to capitalism. They're a lot like asset managers who have generally a two-year tenure and move on. So they, they're not concerned about the long term. Um, that's fascinating, though. Like, And when you talk about people who do want to work or it is a pathway to, for some people, it can be a pathway to healing mm -hmm. and flourishing and we often talk at SAA about how much, what percentage of people who are not working and are being diagnosed with, or not diagnosed with spondyloarthritis or a, another disease uh, that could be working and productive if we had the right language and it was being communicated throughout uh, the different levels of whether it's workforce or society or physicians or politicians. So I'll say the lesson here is we need to use our voices uh, to change the outcomes and not even for ourselves, but for like the people who come through next. Right. Absolutely. And that's why I was, um, you know, when I was on the SAA's website, I saw that there's a big button there that says register to vote. And I love that because you have to vote. So many people don't even vote. And that's that's like basic entry level, you know, using your voice is just voting. Yeah. It's, and it's so important. And I know we continue, and I, and I know SAA continues to, uh, we just had a, a an update on the advocacy committee last weekend. And there was, every time we have a board meeting, it just grows and grows how much activity is going. And it is starting to catch so much interest, I think, from the membership, because it does provide a voice that wasn't there before. So um, do you, let's go, we got off the, sorry, we fell into the, the weeds of capitalism. Um, and are there any one specific story of a patient or a group that has made, in your opinion, the most positive impact for this cause in particular? Uh, yeah, I mean, this, this is something that transcends specialty. So regardless of if you are a rheumatologist, a dermatologist, a gastroenterologist, an internist, whatever, um, all physicians see harm to their patients when they are denied the therapies that they need or are forced to take therapies that they know either doesn't work or they have a contraindication to or something that has come because of the restrictions of step therapy practices. So, um, you know, just in the first year of the current Congress, the 118th Congress, uh, there's been legislation enacted in six states that have made changes to step therapy policy in those states. So um, 
there is a lot of change. There's a lot of momentum. And I, I think it just makes sense, right? We're not fighting to abolish the whole practice of step therapy because we understand that there really isn't a great way for me to know if drug X or drug Y is going to be better for you just looking at you. You know, if you have no other comorbidities, you don't take any other medications, you're young and healthy, like a lot of spondyloarthritis patients are, you know, two, two similar drugs, uh, we don't really have a reason to say like, well, I know for sure this one's going to work and this one's not. So fine, if, if we're going to be able to get this one easily and there's a reason not to take it, go ahead. You know, that's reasonable. The things that are being asked for are also incredibly reasonable, allowing edits to the step therapy when drugs have been tried before, when there are contraindications, you know, when there are reasons why it would be reasonable to expect that that particular drug wouldn't work in that particular person. So for spondyloarthritis specifically, there are a lot of diseases under that umbrella that can lead to uveitis or inflammation of the eye. And not all drugs cover for uveitis. Some just cover more the spine, um, but they don't really cover the eyes. And so being able to write back to the insurance company and say, hey, I appreciate that you want us to use this med. However, there's really no data showing that it'll be helpful in uveitis. And my patient does have uveitis along with their ankylosing spondylitis. So we need to do this other one. So I think having those, those uh, you know, policies in place, you know, post-step therapy legislation are a really, really great step towards making sure that our patients are safe and getting the therapy that they need. I love it. Well, thank you so much for the all the work you've put into this. I think it's aside from wanting to help patients, I think with outcomes just in in the clinic, this is such important work. So we're certainly grateful for the for all everyone who's involved in this. You're making I'm going to go on and do my letters to the senator. I usually do them pretty yeah, regularly, yeah. but um, <laughs> And I've got a DC trip coming up, so I'll see if I can poke some people uh, and go from there. But yeah, anything else you want to share before you before we let you out of the hot seat? <laughs> well, thank you so much for uh, having me on. This has been lovely. I hope that everybody um, becomes their own uh, secretary, so to speak, and takes very good notes on all of their health conditions so that they can make sure their physicians are representing them accurately to their insurance companies. And if you are listening to this and you live in one of those states without step therapy legislation, um, try to send some emails, make some phone calls, make something happen. I'd love to see every single state have protections. Love it. Thank you so much. And now hopefully we'll get you on a round two next, like once we've made more progress. <laughs> Absolutely, would love to. All right, thanks Dr. Downey. Thanks, nice to meet you. SpondyCast was made possible by donations from the Spondylitis Association of America's individual members and our show's corporate sponsor, AbbVie. Since our founding in 1983, the Spondylitis Association of America has been the face, voice, and leading nationwide nonprofit, educating, empowering, and advocating for people living with spondyloarthritis. Through our extensive work with patients, the medical community, and partners, we provide information and resources to help people impacted by the disease live better lives and champion research to find a cure.